Welcome to a very special program for Traumatically Triumphant. Today I am very honored to have a new friend that I've met over in the last few weeks, uh, Rena Finder. Um, she is, well, she has an amazing story that starts in Europe and ends, well, doesn't end yet, but it, it continues all the way to here in America. And um, I don't want to say too much. So, Rena, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us where you're from. And, you know, let's start from the beginning and we'll see where we, where, where we end up. <laughs> My name is Rina Finder. I was born in Krakow, Poland. And then I had a very happy childhood until uh, 1939 when the Germany invaded Poland. And that's, of course, when life stopped and then the other life began. Because, then, of course, Germany, by invading Poland, were extremely anti-Semitic. And uh, basically, there was anti-Semitism always in Poland and really all over the world. Mm. That some people suffer from it more than others. Um, I don't um, remember any bad things that happened to me when I was little. I do remember that when I went to the first grade and played outside at, at recess, uh, one of the little girls picked up a stone and threw it at me, and she called me the dirty Jew. And I remember coming home and uh, say to my mother, why did you call me dirty? I took a shower this morning. <laughs> and my mom tried to explain to me that uh, not everybody's gonna like me and I'm not gonna like everyone, but uh, not to say too much, just to ignore it. Right. Um, I have, a, I have a, a different story, but of a different friend of mine where he, he's a he's a black man. He's in his 60s now, and he was growing up in America, and you know he was very young, and he went up. He ran up to you know a white water fountain, you know, in America when it was still segregated, and he was he was about to drink from it, and his mom slapped him and said, "That's not for you. That's not for you." And then this little white girl who was even younger than him walked up to the, it looked like a really nasty water fountain spigot that was, it said colored water only. And she turned it on and she goes, mommy, how come there's no color in the water? You know, she <laughs> thought it was colorful water. So it's funny to me that you, you know, when you're a kid and you're not, you don't really understand what hate is. So they're like, why would they call me dirty Jew when I'm not dirty? You know, so it, it's, it's to me that that starts to get at like the core of I think what we'll talk about which is where does hate come from and how does it even make sense you know because even the insults that they're saying to you they're they're not even real so um okay so you grew up what did your what did your parents do um for a living at that time uh, my father was working for a company very similar to Johnson and Johnson and he traveled a lot, and my mom was home. Okay. The woman in those days, once right. they had married and had children, I am not a child. Yeah. Um, she stayed home and took care of me. Okay. And so overall, up until big things changed, would you describe your childhood as pretty happy and pretty... I would describe my childhood as extremely happy. My mom came from a large family, my father also from a large family, there were eight brothers, and uh, I would say that I was surrounded by love from certainly grandparents, aunts and uncles, cousins who were older than me, and played with the younger one, and uh, I guess my father made probably good money, would have been a beautiful to me to the day is a beautiful apartment and actually a lot of my teachers and students when they go to Poland they go to Krakow and they go to see I always tell them go to see my house. Yeah. 
it was an apartment house and we rented an apartment, but I always called it my house. Yeah, well, I think also it, it's different, you know, in, in other countries, people that it's very common to live in a nice big apartment that is basically your, your house, I think. Um, so, oh, and sorry. Say that, uh, of course, everything changed overnight. When, um, when the German invaded uh, Poland and took it, uh, it took them just a couple of days. Right. So I, I guess, you know, some people who are more familiar with that part of history and some people are less. From your perspective, and I know, and we've talked about this, that memories change over time, but if you can kind of like, you know, it, your childhood sounds so great up until a certain point. Of course, there are things that are difficult. People aren't as accepting, but that can happen to anybody anywhere. Do you remember, you know, how old you were? And like, was there a moment where you kind of, uh-oh, things are really not, something is wrong. You know, something is wrong in my world. Um, well, I would say that uh, that didn't happen to me till I was in the third grade. And uh, I found uh, at one time also some of the teachers treated them, the, the Jewish uh, students differently. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that I remember, and that was I was in the third grade, I remember that the art teacher gave us the homework and we were to draw spastica. Huh. So you were supposed to draw a swastika for homework. Yeah. I, I remember knowing enough already by that time about Hitler and Semitism. And I came home and I told my mom, of course. And she, they were only about four Jewish girls in my class. The rest were all uh, non-Jewish. And I remember my mom came and organized the, the other Jewish uh, mothers and they went to school and they went to the director. In those times there was no principal, they called them director. It was a woman and it was an old girl's school. In those years before the war, there was no, you know, boys went to one school, girls went to another school. Right. And I remember that then were, of course, upset. And then the director talked to the art teacher and she told that the Jewish, she said, okay, the Jewish girls don't have to write, uh, draw a swastika, uh, they, should, they should draw a horse. They should draw a, a what? <laughs> Just a horse. Oh, okay. Just okay, so they really didn't care. So it was interesting. They're as a school, they're promoting what Hitler is saying, and their way of sort of not making the Jews do it is just not letting the Jews learn anything new or do anything new. They're just go do something, and we'll we'll deal we'll deal with you later. Um, okay, I I I was a very good student, yeah. but I was very bad when it came to drawing. So I remember a man drew a horse <laughs> and I showed it to school as one. I think that was the only time that my mom did something like that, that I would do something like that. <laughs> I felt the hate coming from that teacher. Interesting. It very long. And, um, and then, of course, once we all started, Jewish children were not allowed to go to school anymore. And um, everything that we own started to, the Germans started to take away from us. They took away, they took away our freedom. Right. So how, how long, sorry, to, how long from, I guess, when you started to see these changes in your school to then you can't go to school to then you can't own this, you know, like, do you remember roughly how long that was? Was it very fast or? It was, it was going fast. Yeah. Going fast because while Germans were fighting, going towards Russia, um, the Germans who remained in the cities immediately started to deal with the, 
Jézus kosztus, ez egy azért. Right. I mean, I think that's, yeah, that's uh, the hardest question, I think, and maybe we'll save that for later, but um, it's, it's, you know, luckily I grew up, um, you know, in Jewish schools where we, we listened to Holocaust survivors telling us their stories, and, you know, it was always something that was interesting to me, but that question was always... You know, I think certain survivors have their own takeaways and us kind of regular people, I, I find it useful to listen to and not to then cast my own opinion, but just to listen and, and understand um, because, yeah, I, I, for the life of me, can't imagine what that would be like. So as things are starting to change, what was, I guess, the biggest you know, you know, moment. So you started to have, you know, they're starting to teach you things in school, then they're not letting you go to school. Uh, you're not going to be in your house for much longer. Do you remember what that was like having to, you know, to leave your home and... That, that, was, that was horrible. Yeah. Because they took everything away from us day by day. And when they finally, when we were finally got a permit to remain in Krakow because most of there was before the war there were about fifty thousand Jewish families living in Krakow and um, we were all going to be murdered. Mm. One one family at a time. Same oh, yeah. ways we were told to work for Germany, but of course people were killed. Um, Rina, I'm not sure. I'm going to ask if you're able to sit up a little bit because maybe we can see your mouth. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I want to see. Um, so um, about that, so with the families in Krakow that you were describing, did you see any of the real horrors from the Nazis in Krakow or was it after they sort of took you away? Oh, I, we saw the horror right away when the Germans came. Yeah. Because they started to, first of all, the very religious Jews, when they were walking on the street, they would be stopped, surrounded by the soldiers, and they would be beaten. Their wow. hair was caught. They were told they had to wash the sidewalk. In the winter, they had to clean the snow. At least from the moment the march came, they started to take our freedom away, yeah. away, then our homes away. Then they moved us into the into the ghetto, the Krakow ghetto. Um, not everybody got permits. We were sent away. We were told to go to work to help farmer grow food, and um, and we believed in it because uh, a human being to this day cannot imagine how people who at one time were considered uh, brilliant and famous for his music composers and writers right. and, and thinkers um, and yeah I, and how could somebody like that from country like that what yeah. happened how could it be so inhuman yeah inhuman but they were not human Right. It's to me that's interesting and I think maybe in my email to you I I started talking about it. I know in my personal experience, um, I, during college, I wrote 
uh, a paper or an essay about Nazi propaganda. And then I, uh, I'll admit that I actually rewrote the same paper again for a different class um, and, and improved it quite a bit. And that to me, the reason I wrote it is, you know, I, what you were just saying about how can this amazing society, this advanced society, how is it so easy to just all of a sudden, you know, maybe it was your neighbor, your doctor, your lawyer, your friend. Now all of a sudden people are like, oh yeah, go get that person over there. They're, they're not following your rules and, you know, they don't really care. Is it, do you think that they, the average people really didn't understand the same way you couldn't believe what was really happening? I understand that German people um, believed in Hitler and those who didn't, they were sent to a concentration camp and some of them didn't because they were afraid that they didn't say. Right. But I would say that there was no kindness that I know of right. from any of the Germans. And in Poland too, there was a there was such anti-Semitism in Poland, that, uh, but there, there was also underground people. There were people that would help take a Jewish child and try to save the Jews throughout the war, and kept it after the war when the parents and didn't come back for them. Yeah. But. Um, and there are many books written of those that we call the righteous Gentile. Yeah, amazing stories. Um, and, but but I would say that 90, 99% of non-Jewish non people were happy to see the Jews being murdered. It's so, like that, I mean, it makes my heart sink that anybody would be happy about anybody else suffering. But why... Uh, you know, my limited understanding of the history is that Germany was in a tough spot economically, Europe was in a tough spot economically. It is so crazy to me as a regular human being, I think that, that therefore, you could put all of your energy, not only into hating someone, but into thinking that they are the problem, that destroying them on every level is a solution. I, you know, again, I don't know if you have thoughts on it. It's just, to me, it's something that always has been just very impossible for me to, like, wrap my head around. Um, and it's it's crazy. So I guess without getting too deep into that, so you've you've been taken away from your home. Are you still with your family? You're still with your family at this point, correct? I still with my parents. And uh, we were not allowed to take anything from the apartment, except I remember my father rented a small carriage like a pushcart, a pushcart mm -hmm. with a bed and cotton pants and some clothes, very little, very little. We had to leave everything there. Yeah. I remember walking out of my, my bedroom and looking back at the at the, the book the bookshelf, I had a shelf full of books I used to write last to read and still do. And I had, a, I remember I had a lot of Shirley Temple dolls <laughs> because when, whenever I had, uh, you know, got a good grade at the end of the school, then I would have a, a, a choice of a gift from my parents. A Shirley Temple doll because I love them or a book. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine leaving my house with everything in it. You know, my family were like terrible at throwing things away and we're terrible at keeping things organized. We, you know, we have a lot of people over, so we always have stuff all around. Even now, I have that problem. And it's like just that, especially as a kid, seems really hard. Luckily, as a kid, I think you have that mindset of, oh, well, this is just something new. And you sort of keep adapting. But then I, you, it's like you also keep getting into worse and worse situations. You know, you keep getting pushed into a darker place, into a harder to survive place. Um, 
So can you, I guess, for those of us who aren't as familiar, like explain kind of what it was like to be put in the ghetto? What was, you know, what were the meals like? What were you, you know, I, some people definitely know about it, but again, there are people well, out here who... First of all, when you leave your home behind and you go, you march toward the ghetto, which was the, like on the other side of the river mm -hmm. in uh, Krakow, and there are people standing on the road and saying, good riddance to don't ever come back. Mm. And then you walk into the ghetto behind the walls, behind, surrounded by soldiers. And uh, we were assigned a, an apartment. I remember, remember a very old building. Mm -hmm. All that the bathrooms were outside in a hall. So you lived on the fourth floor and you had four other apartments. But they were like four or five beds. Mm. Outside. Yeah. You didn't have any. And then we were like, so we, we had a tiny room with one bed for my parents and one smaller bed for me. And then we were sent to work. We had to have a job. If we didn't get a permit to work, then they would be, you would be sent so, to Auschwitz. Right. And so, okay, so at the time that you're in the ghetto, you are allowed to, or you're not allowed to, you have to work. Um, what, what kind of jobs, you know, what, what, what was available? What the Germans did in the ghetto was they created workshops. So people who before the war owned factories, for example, making coats, uh, they moved it into the ghetto. Okay. And uh, I work in a papier de shop. That means in a sort of a printing shop mm -hmm. for somebody who owned a printing shop. And it was like around the clock. There was a one ship that worked from um, seven in the morning till seven at night, one week, and then next week it would be, you know, from seven at night till seven in the morning. Okay. And, and the whole time that you were there, of course, every day, uh, there were no stores to buy any food. And um, people were starving, people were sick, and they tried to go to the hospital. Right. Because, uh, every morning the Germans came to the hospital and they would kill the people who were sick of the But the Germans, um, uh, every other every other week, uh, they would uh, have, have everyone come. I remember this was summer already, and they had desks set outside, and you had to go and stay in line and uh, to get a permit to work. Yeah, and uh, you know each time they were given less and less a permit and more and more people were disappearing and we never heard from them even though we were told that they were going to work on a farm. It, it, it there were rumors about Auschwitz. There were rumors about Auschwitz, but people didn't, people didn't believe. People believe. Right. Well, I, I, yeah, that, that reminded me of two things or made me think of two things. One is it feels like in the time that they weren't actively killing Jews, they were trying to kill the Jewish spirit so that they would want to die. Meaning like what you're saying is you have to work around the clock. You have to work. You can't really get sick. You can't really go anywhere if you get sick. You can't really feed yourself. You can't really do this. But they're keeping you sort of your body intact, but your mind and your spirit, they're trying to completely destroy so that when it does come time for them to finish, there's not going to be a fight. There's not going to be a, you know, an uprising or, you know, so it's, so that's like one thing that I, that sort of jumped at me, which is truly evil, you know? Um, and then you were talking about hearing about Auschwitz as a rumor. We, uh, I, I had the privilege of hearing a speaker. He was an American GI who went over 
and liberated, I think if, if it wasn't Auschwitz, it was another pretty major camp. And they really had heard rumors about these things, but all of a sudden he, I mean, he just, they had no idea. And he, and even when he was describing them coming over a hill, sorry. The Americans, um, you know, when they marched into Mauthausen, mm -hmm. which was concentration camps in Germany, they could not believe what they saw. Yeah, I mean, this this man, you know, they didn't tell. They didn't tell anybody for years. Yeah, and he he had been, you know, he he described losing one of his friends who was a soldier and he's still emotional about it and he was still emotional. But then when he described what he saw, he said there was nothing, he goes, I was from Iowa. He goes, there was nothing that ever could have prepared me or my other soldiers, even after seeing all this death, which we weren't prepared for on the battlefield, no. there was nothing that could have prepared us for, you know, I, I wish I remembered all the words that he said, but it was just, I mean, he was still crying about it 70 years later and he wasn't thankfully you know for himself not the one who had to survive that entire experience so it it's yeah i mean it, it makes my blood curdle thinking about it and knowing that i've you know known so many people who've had to go through it it's like it's unthinkable so you okay so you guys your family has been living in the ghetto how long were you there and then um, until the next part. We were in the ghetto probably um, two years. And then from, and my father was taken away. My mother's parents were taken away. Uh -huh. My sister and her two children and her husband were taken away. And we were told that they were Tend to be working a farm someplace in Germany. Right. Uh, because what, what you heard about Auschwitz, you could not believe. You could not believe that something like that could exist. But there was underground. Right. And, and people, not just Jewish people, but there were some Polish people that wanted to help. But they were very few. You think of all the people, mostly Jews. There was such anti Semitism in Poland that not, they were happy that the Jews were being killed. It's just, that's so, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 I, I don't even know. <laughs> um, okay, so at this point, now you're two years into what I would consider a living hell. Um, and then liquidated. Right. And then so so the ghetto is liquidated, which we were going to be sent to an, another camp that was built a little bit about two miles outside of the ghetto on uh, two Jewish cemeteries. Oh, yeah. They sent men to these men to build uh, level the ground and build barracks. And so you can imagine what happens when you start building barracks on the on, on the graves of other people. Mm. They were taking the stones away and killing it. They were using it for driveways, for walks. And the time came that we had to leave the, the ghetto. It was like my mom and me. Um, I became care of my little cousin whose parents were taken away and we were hiding there. And I said I could take her with me, but they didn't let me go with her. They took her away and they said to me, actually it was the Jewish police, they said they will go, children are going to be in the orphan's home and the, the nuns will take care of, will take care of them. Uh -huh. So I left her, and as I walked out of the ghetto with the people I worked with, I realized that some of them in their backpack had their little children who were, you know, given kids to eat, 
and those were some of them lucky people like who were able next day when they went to work that they had some Christian friends who would take the child and they said that to save it. But those people were in danger, not because of which disciples, but the neighbors. Because if the neighbors would suspect them of doing something good for the Jews, then they would take the disciples, the whole family of the Yeah, I mean, that's, again, going back to this like system of killing the spirit is, you know, it's one thing for the government to enforce things, but then to have every single citizen and, and, you know, encouraging them to like bring these people to, I don't know, their deaths or their demise is, is just, yeah, it's unthinkable. I, I, my, I do have one question. Was there a situation where you personally, cause you know, in your book, um, which is written more for children and, and younger people, was there a situation where you, other than generally what was going on, where you were shaken to your core in some way that just... We were uh, the commander of the camp was Amon Geth. Mm-hmm. Amon Geth, one of the most dangerous murderers. He used to stand on his balcony and kill people just for the fun of it. And um, I remember that uh, standing uh, and he was walking behind. I never looked at his face. I always looked straight so that I wouldn't see his face. When after the war, after he was hanged, and then she showed me the, his picture. I didn't, I didn't know what was him because I never really looked at his face. Wow. But uh, I remember when we were working, I don't remember what we were doing, we were standing. And uh, women, like 500 women. And, um, and he was right behind me and he shouted there, but he's standing next to me from the back. In the back, no reason. Huh. Yeah. Oh. So, and he and and that person was portrayed, if I recall, which is actually a good transition for where we're going to get to the next part of the story, which is part of the happier part of the story. So he was that character was portrayed in the movie Schindler's List, correct? Yeah. Right. So he was played by I think it was Ralph Fiennes in that movie, and yeah, he was pretty evil in that film. So in real life, I could imagine, well, I can't really imagine, but yeah, uh, horrible. No, no, we were also very lucky because we heard about Oscar Schindler. There were people who were for Oscar Schindler and they would come and when they would come to the bar after night, they would say how wonderful a man he was. Mm -hmm. He was crushing, like, even though he was born in Czechoslovakia, he was a German. And, um, and he, was, um, he was very ambitious. He wanted to make a lot of money to be able to have expensive cars, expensive horses, expensive lady friends. Yeah. And, <laughs> He decided he was one of the first in the Czech Republic to join the Nazi party. Interesting. And, and, um, but he did not join, uh, he did join the Nazi party, but he joined them because he wanted to take over a factory in Krakow and become rich. Right. So he was bribing people. You know, the general and the people who had a lot to say. And he was able to take over the factory because it was making pots and pans before the war. And then, so he uh, took part of the factory to make ammunition. Mm -hmm. And so he was the best of friends with all the important generals. 
and Milos became a very good friend of uh, Amagerd because he needed his people to come to work in the barn. And once we left the ghetto and lived in the borough, we had to go walk. But everybody was saying how wonderful he was. And then my mother heard that he was going to hire more people. And I remember that she sent me to the Jewish policeman who would be in charge. And he was a friend of my father. Um, and uh, why she sent me, why she didn't go, I never had a chance to ask her. Never thought about asking her if it was too late. Mm -hmm. And uh, he put my mom and me on the list. Wow. So I and my mom joined 150 women to come and work for Oscar Schindler, who built a small camp next to the factory. Huh. And so we left, so we were able to leave Amongst and the trash was behind us. And uh, Oscar Schindler treated us as human beings. The barracks were small and we had bunk beds. There was better food. I remember every now and then we got an egg. I remember everybody was shaking that egg. And, um, you know, without cooking it or anything. Yeah. And putting pieces of bread inside. Yeah. It was still. And he, he had a little barrack where like a little hospital. I remember I had pneumonia and I was in the barrack for three days. If I was in the classroom, I would be killed on the third day I went in. Yeah. Um, so okay. it's interesting. Your description of Oscar Schindler is like, it's so interesting to me because he wasn't, you know, he, he ended up being an incredibly heroic, brave person. But it, what's, what's funny about that to me is it seemed to be driven by a pretty normal, selfish passion to be successful, to be liked. And so therefore, which is interesting, he didn't, he decided that there, there was no room to hate one person or another. He'd have to make friends with certain Nazis. He'd help other people to get cheap labor, but he's not going to, you know, so it's so interesting that he's this hero, but with what such normal... What happened is that uh, as he start, started the factory and started to get uh, friends with the general, and he was realizing what was, what was their plan when it came to the door. Mm. And he was not going to let it happen to his people. Gotcha. It okay. Was, it was when he realized, I think, that, uh, that the Jews were going to be murdered. Right. And probably while we all had rumor about Auschwitz, nobody believed it. And of course, nobody ever came right. from Auschwitz. I mean, yeah. I know, I know that there are some of the Polish underground people were talking and telling people what Auschwitz was about, that people were burned. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but who could, who, who believed? Okay, so, so, okay, so that's nice. So he started normal, and then as he realized what was happening because he was so well connected, it went from, okay, cheap labor to this is actually something that I need to be like part of the solution for, you know? That's so that's, that's, that's interesting. I mean, that's, but again, to me, that shows that you could, you don't need to be born a hero to be a hero. You know, you could, you can be doing something that's very normal, take a step out, look at, well, what am I doing? How am I impacting and what's going on? And then say, ah, I have a chance to be helping these people while they're also helping me. And that, you know, especially it, at the time was very brave. <laughs> it seems to me now that if people could get rid of their hate, 
if the people would look at me and not maybe spit at me because it is I know I'm Jewish, if the people would look at a black person and not see that they are black, but they are human beings just like people like everybody else, if the people would realize that it doesn't matter what you be, who your God is, whether you are Christian or Muslim or Jewish, under your skin, if you cut your finger, everybody's blood is red. Yeah. So we are all human. We are all human. We are all built the same way. We have the same brain. And yeah. if we just could look at each other as a human being, then the world would be a different place. I, I oh, I agree. How 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 do you think, as people, and you may not have this answer. That's okay. But how do you think, or what have you seen in the years that you've been telling your story, in the years that you've been seeing the world? evolve and devolve <laughs> um what what do you think is is a method that helps to get rid of our hate um well i know that i've been speaking to students all over the world yeah almost 40 years and i find that i get letters from the students who are now fathers or grandfathers, that they would write to me and tell me that uh, that I changed, my story changed their lives. Wow. I think if we can, you know, people could accept each other. Because I'm sure that the God in heaven, whatever you people believe in, does not want the people to kill each other. I I agree with you fully. Um, it's, you know, I I had another experience while teaching a fifth grade class. Um, I was talking about slavery and segregation in America. And um, I was trying to explain to them that America, the policy was if you were African or black skin, you were a slave most likely and you didn't have rights and you didn't and and my students who are orthodox jewish kids growing up in a pretty you know one dimensional kind of community they still could not understand the idea that somebody's skin color should be a reason to hate them enslave them etc and it's interesting because they they knew in their head that slavery at one point existed in America. They knew in their head that segregation was a problem in America. But when they actually had to look at what the fact was, the fact was people only because of their skin color were being treated a certain way did not make sense. So that's why when I was asking about the hate, I feel that we teach this hate and that when then you encounter someone like you or you encounter someone who you've only heard about in these stories or in these made up you know terrible messages that when you finally encounter someone and you have a conversation that goes a little bit deeper than their skin color you start to see oh they're part of a family oh they want to you know have a good dinner they want you know it's like we all like the same things more or less um and yet we seem to get taught and programmed so many negative things. Um, I have never seen an Afro-American person till I came to Austria after the liberation. And I came, we came after the liberation, we all went to Poland and found out that everybody in the family was there. And so people went back to the, I went uh, because I knew somebody was telling me somebody who survived and who knew me told me a friend, a good friend of mine, survived and was in Linz, Austria, in a little camp. And it was until I went to Austria, I remember walking on a street and there were the GIs 
And I think there was a sign for whites only. Mm. Then there was a sign completely. And I said, well, what does it mean? Yeah. I didn't understand. And I looked at the, you know, the black American soldier. I didn't see a black person. I saw a soldier right. who, who fought to make us free. Yeah. I just could not, and to this day, uh, I feel the same way. Yeah. I cannot, I cannot understand because after all, the Jews were, I think we were the first people that were harmed. I mean, we were not free. Right. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's it marvelous to liberate them from the addiction. Right. Yeah. And and I don't. I, it's funny growing up, even though my skin certainly uh, is that of a white European person, I it's it's a hard thing to just consider Jews white because we're so many different things, and also that's the least important part of our identity is like the color of our skin on the outside. So. Um, I know for some people it is more important, but I think the more importance we place on that versus how you act, how you treat other people, how you think, you know, those things I think are really critical. So uh, we, I, this is a great discussion. I, I am curious. I have like two questions that I still wanted to ask about, I guess they're sort of connected is before we get too quickly out of um, some of the the childhood stuff, which is if you're living your life day to day knowing that it could be your last um, at a moment, how did you, I guess, I guess being in the factory was much better, but in the days where you weren't there, which I know you, you were there for a little bit and then you came back to the camp and then you got brought back to Oscar's uh, factory, but. But when we came back from, uh from the factory in Krakow, uh, we were in Krakow for a short time while the factory was being moved to uh, Czechoslovakia, to Greenwich. So we didn't, um, and, and the Armageddon was not there anymore. Okay. But yeah. how, did, how did you, in your own head, because I've heard very different stories and this, how did you in your own mind keep yourself positive enough to survive? Because sometimes when you're not eating, when you don't have all these things, it is the difference of your brain keeping you alive or your heart or, you know, versus the physical conditions, you know, you're, you're in pretty bad conditions, but you know, you seem like a very positive person what 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 kept you going during this time? I guess. Well, first of all, I believe that uh, that the Oscar Schindler will save us. That he we will be able to that that going back to Brussels and for Amalgam not being there, mm -hmm. I felt secure. No, but you okay. know what we were doing when we were in Brussels. I mean, there were four of us, my mom and me, and then another girl, my who of course became my lifelong friend. Yeah. And mother, uh, we were packing boxes of the things that the Germans were stealing. They were art, they were clothing, they were silver and gold. And, and we were pack, making packages that the Germans were taking it and sending it to, to Germany. Hmm. So we have we had great hope, right? And the time came and we were sent on a train. We were sure we were going to Oscar Schindler. Okay. But when the train finally stopped and we got out, and I looked around and I saw miles and miles of barbed wire. And I looked up and there was a sign, how should it get out? Yeah. 
and I didn't. That's when, but I still was hopeful. Right. And and did you find for people, you know, let's I guess maybe people even your age at the time, was there a big difference that you found and some people had that hope that tomorrow someone's gonna come or tomorrow the Americans are gonna hear about this or tomorrow you know, was there kind of a difference between let's say you and others where they're like this is life, no one's coming to get us. And, you know, do you remember that? I think that the people on Schindler's List we had such high hope mm -hmm. that they come and save us because this was a train that everybody right. was taken from Prussia by that time already. And uh, we were put in different separate trains. Right. And we were taken to separate barracks. Of course, we were all taken to be shaped and, and, and put into the room where we thought that we were going to be killed already. But we were lucky because we didn't, we were not guests. We were just without water. We were right. And right. we were there for three and a half weeks. And by that time, we were losing. We were losing. We yeah. were very skinny. We were sick. We were hungry. But Oscar Schindler did come. Yeah. He took us out. So, which. And once we got to, to Schindler's factory in Berlin's, we never doubted for a moment that, that we would not survive. So, is that. You know, you just brought up an interesting thing because your story, out of all the stories so far that I've been that I've been talking about, they're all completely different in my opinion. But there is none that really quite compares to someone who's gone through what you've gone through, unless maybe you're from Cambodia or Rwanda or Darfur, you know, where they've had attempts at genocide that are almost as vicious and you know horrendous as as um, the Holocaust. But what's interesting is that in almost every single situation that I've speaking to people where they've had a really rough either patch in life or a rough upbringing or something working against them was that there was someone, a mentor, a friend, an uncle, an aunt, someone who kind of decided you're in this bad world. I'm going to show you that you're able to be better than that and that the world is able to be better. And in your case, obviously you had your mother there and you had some friends, but Oscar Schindler is kind of like, he became that person that gave hope to hundreds, if not thousands of, of people at a time that otherwise there was no hope, you know? And, and in reading your book, it wasn't just him, it was his wife. It was the entire group that was there now believing that there is hope in the world again. And so it's, it's remarkable how much of a difference one person can make in a positive way Absolutely. to so many people. Um, and I find that amazing, which is actually leading me to my next question, because you are one person, Marina, and you have written a book and you have probably spoken, I'm guessing, to thousands of people. What is, and you've, you've kind of spoken about, you know, getting rid of our hate, but what is... I'm sure there's a few. What is the driving motivation that A, keeps you going as strong as you are today, but also as committed as you are to having to talk about this, the worst of the worst of the worst of human life, that you've experienced it, but you're also, you are not, it doesn't seem to be bringing you down at this point. It seems to be empowering you and empowering others. If, 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 but maybe I'm wrong. So I, I kind of want to hear about what you then took after all this and what keeps the driving force um, going. Well, I, I feel that I need to share my story to teach the younger generation not to be a bully. Mm -hmm. This is one of the things that I try to convey to the people I'm talking to right. about hate, 
and tell about bullying and telling some, uh, and also don't think you are better than somebody else does because they have different religion or a different color. Right. And I tell the kids in school, you know, you may, you may have a friend that's black if you don't want him, but you know, if you cut your finger, you're black, you're black, and his blood is black. So under your skin, inside, you all the same. Yeah. And you, especially the bully, I always tell the kids, the bully is a coward. Because a bully will always attack somebody who is smaller. Well, and, and the other thing that I say about a bully is, the bully is only blaming you or trying to make fun of you or trying to hurt you because of something that they don't want to deal with with themselves. They don't want to deal with that they might have a problem that they have to t discuss and deal with and be open about. So they'd rather blame you, the Jew or the pretty girl or the the not attractive kid in the class, whatever it is, the nerdy, you know, whatever thing that they are feeling bad about, they're going to just transfer that, which is very cowardly. <laughs> um, you know, I, you made me thought of something else. Um, and, and I feel that I don't want the world ever to forget about those touching gloves. Because mm -hmm. this is such a one, imagine this whole world. It was one person, one German, who had who wanted to save Jewish people. Yeah. Where were the millions of the other Germans that, that stood by and, and watched? I mean, the, the, the concentration camps were next to a little town or a little village. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, some of those stories where you hear about just how close your neighbor, maybe from six months ago, is now in this terrible, terrible death camp um, is just so, yeah, like I couldn't, I couldn't imagine. And so I'm, to me, it's amazing that you had the experience um, of getting to know Oscar Schindler and that he's kept, you know, he's a huge reason why we're able to have this conversation. And that brings me, I think, something that we spoke about on the phone and I can't help but think because I see so many posts on the internet nowadays about, and I see it from both sides of the politics and I don't really like it on either side, but a lot of people are saying things where they're talking about how the media is being a bit like the Nazis, or if you support this, you're basically a Nazi, or if you do this, you're a Nazi. And to me, that is a very, very, very dangerous way to start labeling people. It's also a very disrespectful thing for many people who are definitely not even close to what a Nazi is. So I guess, you know, I, I don't want to put you on the political uh, plug right now, but I am curious. It's been uh, 80 year, almost 80 years. And here we are in this weird time in the world where I feel that we've been going backwards in terms of how we relate to each other, in terms of how we respect each other. Um, and it's not just race, it seems politics, it seems just human. So I'm just curious, like, if you have any thoughts on like where we are now and if there's a message to kids or to adults or anything. Well, I feel now 75 years after the war. Yeah. And uh, I feel that things are beginning to look like 1933 in Germany, when people with everything, with the anti-Semitism, with the neo-Nazis, I still, I can't believe it's happening. I can't believe that nobody really speaks up. And and what what should specific? I mean, if if you have something, what is the specific element that's like? Because I I have my own perspective, and then it's funny because I'll have a conversation with a friend, and they'll see it exactly the opposite of the way that I see it, you know, and and they're respectful about it at least in the beginning, and then we start to disagree, and it's like then things start to unravel, and so 
when you say you're seeing this sort of rhetoric, in what sense specifically? Um, if, 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 you, if you can share that. Well, when it comes to the neo-Nazis, who are mm -hmm. getting very strong now, yeah. then they are, of course, anti-Semitists, and um, the Muslims, I mean, the, the people who are being murdered now. Right. Uh, I see, I see the war. I see yeah. horrible things happening, and not people are not doing enough. Yeah, and I and I think and I agree with you that I think we are still getting too caught up on either what the skin color looks like, what their shirt looks like, what their political, you know, whatever these things that aren't about the blood being red or their soul being the same. We are we are getting too caught up on things that you know remove our own humanity from from each other. Um, I saw an interesting picture recently. It was two eggs. One was a brown egg and one was a white egg. And then right next to it, they were both cracked open with the shell next to it, but the yolks and everything looks the exact same. And they said like, this is what people are, you know? And to me, I was like, that's great. I I'll send you the picture, I'll email it to you if you want. Um, but- a wonderful thing to do when you are in school or to, or any meeting. Yeah. Um, so this was a really great conversation. Um, I'd like to know if you've got anything else to, to add to it or any message um, or resource that you think people should be looking for um, with regards to your story or World War II in general. Um, well, I think that there are people who don't know much about the world. They are young and they are interested. Mm -hmm. And they're busy with their daily lives, whatever they do. Yeah. But the people, especially young people, uh, hear things, they listen. And uh, if somebody doesn't stop talking about the anti Semitism, and about the hate for the black people, um, things are gonna things are gonna be back to 1934, 35, 36. Hey. That's when Hitler came in power, and he blamed everything on the Jews. Right. Yeah, I I uh, I pray and I hope that. We don't repeat what we did, even in the lifetime of you and other people who are still around to see it. I, I pray that none of us um, experience that because we have so much more information about each other. We have so much more ability to connect and communicate. And that we have so much that we can do good. Yeah. There's so many things that we can help other people. And, and, and I would say that I think what's amazing about your story and even some people that I know, you know, Americans who've experienced racism, let's say anti-black racism, et cetera, is people who can recognize how horrendous a certain leader or policy or law or culture can be to truly oppress you, but then also be able to, when the time comes, pick yourself up pick your community up, pick your family up and say, this happened. We don't want it to happen again. And the only way it can happen again is if we keep helping ourselves, helping others and not trying to then finding a new way to hate people because of what happened or finding a new way to hate because we're upset about this. You know, we can't just let difficulty lead to hate because I think it's such a slippery slope and uh, we are definitely feeling it now. Um, and I also wish that the Pope would say more, talk more to the people about the things that are happening. Yeah. There is too much silence, I feel, from the Pope. I, I, I think there's too much silence right now that there's, there's so much, even in the attempt to be peaceful, it's like a hateful tone 
that people aren't really allowed to then come to the discussion, you know? And it's like, to me, I, I want all people really, because we can all learn from each other, you know? And, and the fact that you hadn't seen a black person until after you had been liberated was the way you describe it was a learning experience. It wasn't a, oh no, who is this new thing? I, you know, if that's your mentality to something new, life is gonna be challenging, difficult and depressing. <laughs> because there's always going to be challenges. And as you and I have discussed with our personal losses, um, with my brother and your daughter, you, you never know what someone's gone through. You know, you, you can never have that idea. You can never know what pain they're feeling. Um, and the best thing you can do is always give them as much respect as possible um, and, and try to Try to be good so they'll be good in in return <laughs> okay many many friends of different colors yeah. and i never think of them right yeah I, yeah i mean I, I agree my thank god my parents were also like we grew up in a really open house we had all kinds of people over even on shabbat whether they were jewish or not we just like you know i, I think people are they're all God's creations or they're all human creations, depending on the way you look at it. But if you start making reasons to hate, it ain't gonna be good. No, no, it's really after the new generation. Yeah. To teach them. Okay. To teach the, to teach the other. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Rina. Um, I hope that we get to talk again soon. It doesn't need to be in a recorded podcast. Um, yes, and um, I'm going to thank Michael again and Marjorie for setting this up. And um, can't wait to release this in a few weeks.